0: Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories The podcast has been growing really well recently And that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show Throughout the growth and keep it sustainable We have a Patreon, an Amazon book list, a coffee, and an Audible affiliate link So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you all of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com. And of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. When the Altick farmhouse on the outskirts of LaPort, Indiana, burnt down in 1908, Locals thought it a tragedy that claimed the lives of three children and their heroic mother who had died trying to protect them from the flames. During the excavation to Debris, the story flipped on its head as far more than the four bodies expected were eventually found. Butchered and cast into pits, they were the victims of Belle Gunness, a woman the newspapers would come to call the Laporte Ghoul, the Indiana Ogress, the Human Vampire, Hell's Princess and Lady Bluebeard. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, welcome to Dark Histories, Series 3, Episode 13. I hope everyone is doing really well. I hope this finds you all in good health and enjoying the summer, if it's indeed summer where you are, I suppose. I sort of tend to forget that it's not, not everyone is sharing exactly the same weather as me. Um, but yeah, we've had a like, really nice sun here. So yeah, I hope you all had a great couple of weeks anyway and you've all been enjoying yourselves. After the last couple of slightly crazy episodes, we're coming a bit down to earth again uh, with this one. It's quite a big one, I guess. And it's one that's been requested a few times. And I've kind of always meant to do it and just not got round to it. So I thought, you know, hey, it's sunny, it's summer, everyone's happy, let's do some murder. So before we start, I just want to say thank you to all the new supporters uh, on the Patreon. We've got Mickey, Paige, Kelly, Heather, Kelly, Carrie, Wendy and Michelle. So thanks very much for joining up Um, and thank you everyone who does support. It's it's amazing. And obviously, like I always say, it really helps. Um, Thank you also everyone who left reviews in the month of June. That was amazing. The stickers should be kind of, everyone should be receiving them or have received them by now, hopefully. It was amazing how many people actually stepped up, and, and it really has helped. So that, that's amazing. So thank you very much for leaving a review if, if, you, if you did that. I promise I'll, I'll not beg for reviews for too long now. So yeah, thank you very much. So without further ado, let's kind of crack on, because I think this is going to be a bit of a long one, this one. So here we go. We've got Lady Bluebeard, Belle Gunness, and The Murder Farm. In 1880, Chicago was one of America's most modern cities. It had not been entirely by design; rather, it had been rebuilt from the ashes after the Great Fire of Chicago ravaged the streets, destroying over 17,000 of the earlier buildings, killing 300, and making homeless over a hundred thousand people, roughly one third of residents overnight. In the years before the fire, Chicago had undergone rapid expansion, fueled by industrialization and after the flames were put out, the city was keen to return to progress. The first building, began rebuilding on the same day the last fire, petered out, and now with a renewed figure, the residents invested heavily in both its regeneration and modernization, Creating new building and fire safety hazards along the way, they made Chicago one of the most fireproof cities in the world, with one of the best trained, staffed and equipped firefighting forces in the country. As an industrial hub, Chicago had long drawn foreign immigrants to its center with the promise of steady work and allowance for big dreams. People had come from all corners of America and as such, all corners of the globe. There were large communities of German, Polish, Scottish, Irish, Italian and Jewish immigrants that were all well established. By 1890, it was estimated that 90% of the Chicago populace was born of foreign parentage. Aside from the larger communities, a significant percentage of these were Norwegians. In 1850, Norwegians were the third largest group of immigrants in the city, behind only the German and Irish. A decade later, this had grown to 1,500, and by 1870 it had grown to more than 8,000 Norwegian Chicagoans. As the World's Fair descended onto the city in 1893, the population of Norwegians had grown to more than 20,000 the third-largest Norwegian population in the entire world, behind only Oslo and Bergen. Supporting this population, there were Norwegian-language newspapers, churches and schools. The communities lived in small congregations with majority Norwegians and maintained a healthy reputation amongst many, who commended the cleanliness of the streets in such areas and the impossibly low figure of crime and arrest, where Norwegians counted for only 1% of the entire city. One such Norwegian immigrant living in Chicago at the turn of the century was Brynhild Paulsdatus Storzer. Born on 11th November 1859, she was a large stocky woman, standing 5 foot 10 tall and casting an imposing figure at over 200 pounds. She was the daughter of farmer Paul Pedersen and mother Beret. She was one of six children and had grown up on a small piece of leased land used for farming in Selbu, Norway striving to survive on the poverty line. The family bred a few cattle and grew simple crops to provide for themselves, as well as collecting poor relief from the state. Brynhild was often seen out collecting firewood, as they were too poor to buy it from the local traders. In 1874, aged 14, Brynhild was hired out by her parents to a neighbour where she worked his farm as a dairymaid. He described her as a diligent human being that in all ways behaved well. The local pastor, too, only had good things to say for Brynhild, stating that she had been good in religious knowledge and diligence. By the age of 17, she fell victim to local rumour when stories circulated that she had become pregnant after sleeping with a local landowner. The story followed that the landowner had beaten her in order to force her to miscarry in order to avoid marriage to someone of such low birth. Though this story remains rumour and there exists no documentation, Those that were apparently close to Brynhild during these days in Norway told of how it changed her fundamentally in her outlook on life, turning her angry and bitter. Many of the earliest stories concerning the young dairymaid are difficult to untangle fact from rumour and the reality is probably much more mundane. Her early years in Norway are coloured in grim tales of poverty and scathing judgments on her personal life, speaking of her as a liar with unpretty tricks and a scum on society. However, the basic truth behind it all was that she lived an unglamorous life, steeped in poverty, scraping by within a large, unspectacular family on a sorry plot of rented farmland. Her future was set to change, however, when in 1881 she left Norway, bound for America. She travelled via Trondheim, sailing across the North Sea for four days, before arriving in Hull, England, where she transferred to Liverpool, boarded a steamer and launched towards a new life across the Atlantic. Her trip had been paid for by her older sister, Nellie, who had moved to Chicago ten years prior, and she now travelled to join her, living with Nellie and her husband, John Larson. Upon arrival, and like many Norwegian immigrants before her, including her sister, Brynhild changed her name to something she deemed more American, opting for the new name, Bella Peterson. She took a job in several domestic occupations, working as a servant, maid and housekeeper. It was tiresome and unenjoyable work for Bella, but it sure beat her life back in Norway, and so she slowly settled into her new life in America, putting her difficult upbringing surrounded by poverty behind her, and replacing it instead with the promise of all the glamour on offer in the modern capitalist metropolis of the rebuilt Chicago. Here she was free to dream of a bigger and better life one of all the money and plush comforts denied to her in her younger days. Bella settled easily into her life in America. Her sister Nellie spoke of how she instantly took to the American dream and found little trouble adapting to her new life, despite the differences in culture and living. In March of 1884, she met and married Mads Ditlav Anton Sorensen. He was five years her senior and worked as a night watchman in the Mandel Brothers department store on State and Madison. The couple's early married life appears to have coasted by, making little waves. Bella was obsessed with children, however it seemed their first attempts at creating a family of their own ended in failure. This caused what was to be a severe rift between Bella and her sister when, unable to conceive, she asked her sister Nellie to allow her to adopt their youngest child. Nellie flatly refused and the pair broke apart, barely speaking ever again. Instead, in 1891, Bella and Mads adopted an eight-month-old infant girl named Jenny from their neighbours, the Olsen family. Mrs. Olsen was terminally ill, and following her death, Jenny's father offered her for adoption, though several years later, after he remarried, he attempted to regain custody of the child, but by this time, Bella was not interested in giving her over so easily. She fought Mr. Olsen in court and won custody. In 1894, Bella and Mads bought a small newsagents and candy store on Grand Avenue and Edward Street, a major street and a good location in the city of Chicago. The store sold newspapers, stationery, tobacco and cigars, as well as candy and simple groceries. And though it seemed to have a lot going for it in terms of location, the business struggled, and within a year it appeared to be faltering on the brink of folding. Perhaps, fortunately for Bella and Mads, It burnt down shortly after this downturn, and whilst the building still stood, it was completely gutted by the fire, which Bella claimed had been caused by an exploding kerosene lamp. The insurance company investigated the fire, and whilst they found no evidence of any exploding lamps, they still paid out, which given the circumstances, was something of a win for Bella. The pair sold the shop back to the brother of the original owner, and moved out of the city centre into a small leafy suburb of Austin, where they settled into a slower pace of life and once again attempted to start their family. Between 1896 and 1898, Bella and Mads welcomed four new children to their growing family, Caroline, Myrtle, Axel and Lucy, though documents do not state how many, if any at all, were birthed by Bella herself or how many were orphaned to the family's care. Regardless of the four children, only two survived past infancy, Caroline died aged five months old of enterocolitis and Axel died just three months old of hydrocephalus. In the 1890s, infant mortality rates were on the cusp of improving, though they were still severe, with 150 infants dying within their first year per 1,000 children born and with rates in large urban cities, they are even higher still. In 1897, Bella and Mads were visited by a representative of the Yukon Mining and Trading Company, seeking to enlist adventurous prospectors to send out west in order to find fortune for both themselves and the company. Bella was instantly attracted to this idea, and with a little coaxing, she persuaded Mads to sign up for a year's service, whereby he would be contracted to prospect for gold mines from April 1, 1898 to 1899. For his efforts, he would be paid a good wage along with a quarter of all profits made by any mines he discovered during his contract. The company would also pay Bella a sum for the inconvenience of removing the breadwinner for a year and furnish them with shares in the company. On their part, Bella and Mads needed only to invest an upfront sum to cover one year's supplies along with a promissory note for $700 using their house as collateral. This wasn't a small investment by any stretch and it equaled around $20,000 by today's standards. However, it was merely a drop in the big dreamy ocean that better imagined for the wealth that awaited them in their future. The get-rich-quick scheme naturally turned out to be a scam, however, a fact the couple only found out when Mads went to meet his transport to take him out west months later, and no one showed up. Fortunately, they won the ensuing legal battle to remove themselves from the responsibility of coming good on the overturned promissory note, but the gold line future that Bella dared to dream of had fallen into a dark pit of disappointment. Maz returned once again to the department store work with tail firmly between his legs. This mining venture was to be the beginning of a series of unfortunate events for Bella. On Tuesday, April the 10th, 1900, their house burnt down once again. This time it had been caused by a defective heating appliance, and though the house was saved the family lost $650 in household goods, according to Bella, a sum which, rather fortunately, was covered by their insurance. Three months later, things turned even more severe when on Monday, July the 30th, Mads returned home from work feeling ill. He had been suffering from a cold and when he arrived home, had complained of a fearful headache. Bella gave him a dose of quinine powder and put him to bed. She went downstairs to make dinner. And when she later returned to check on him, she found him lying fully clothed on the bed, not breathing and entirely lifeless. Bella summoned the family physician, Dr. J.C. Miller, who arrived and declared Mads dead, with the cause being cerebral hemorrhage. When he asked to check the paper that Bella had used to administer the quinine powder, Bella claimed to have tossed it out into the trash, and nothing more was mentioned. Rather fortuitously for Bella, the timing of this grim event could literally not have been any better. If there was ever a good time to die, Mads had hit it perfectly. He had previously had a life insurance policy with one company, but had recently switched it over to another. As one policy ended, the second was set to begin Monday, the 30th of July, just so happened to be the exact date of the transition, and as such, Bella was able to claim on both policies, making a cool $5,000. 2000 from the first and 3000 from the second. In total, it was a windfall worth over $150,000 today. In her vast torment and grief, she quickly made about finding a more upmarket home to live in that would better fit her moneyed widower status. She wrote a classified ad to be published in the local papers seeking a new property and was duly contacted by the owner of a 48-acre plot with large 13-room farmhouse in LaPorte County, Indiana. Sad as I'm sure she was, Bella wasted no time in spending her dead husband's life insurance money. She snapped it up and promptly moved to the not so humble plot. Upon moving to LaPorte, Bella once again changed her name. To her new neighbors, she introduced herself as Belle, a name which she took on officially from this point in time only using Bella to sign on for official paperwork. The house she had bought was known locally as Altic Place and was built by one of the founding fathers of Laporte County, John C. Walker, for his daughter. After the Civil War, the family saw fit to leave the county owing somewhat to their southern sympathies and a large old place passed through several less than reputable hands, playing host to a gang of criminals for a time and later a working brothel. By the time Bell moved in, it had passed through several more hands and the history of the place had, for the most part, fallen by the wayside to all but the more elder locals. Bell set about the place, working on the farmland. The neighbours must have found her somewhat curious, the large woman traipsing around her property. It was still a time period when men did the men's work and women were absolutely not to get involved in such mucky tasks. It is possibly through this lens that the following description of Belle was written by one of her new neighbours. She was a fat, heavily-featured woman with a big head, covered with a mop of mud-coloured hair, small eyes, huge hands and arms, and a gross body supported by feet grotesquely small. Whatever they thought of her, Belle apparently paid it no mind. It was certainly true that Belle was a large woman, and though this rather unattractive description of her was fairly accurate, it didn't seem to affect her relationships very much. By 1902, Bell had met and remarried Peter Gunnis. Peter had known Bell back in Chicago in 1893 when he had rented a room for a brief period in Bell and Mad's house. He had emigrated to America from Oslo in 1885 and now he had returned to Norway after lodging with Bell. He had later returned to America, living in Minneapolis where he had married and had two children. Swanhild, born in 1897, and a second daughter born in 1901. Unfortunately, his wife had died during the birth of their second daughter. He didn't remain a widow for long, as shortly after he remarried Belle on April 1st, 1902, and moved with his two children into the farmhouse in Laporte. Tragedy quickly struck the household, when less than a week later, on April the 6th, Peter's youngest infant daughter, aged just seven months, died of edema of the lungs, whilst under the care of Belle. Belle's fantastic run of bad luck continued into 1902, when, on December 16th, her new husband Peter met with a spectacular accident with a sausage grinder. At 3am in the morning, Jenny, Belle's adopted daughter who was by now 12 years old, woke the Swan Nicholson family, their nearest neighbours, by banging on their front door, seemingly in some distress. Mr. Swan opened the door to see Jenny standing on the porch, holding a stove poker in one hand and clearly out of breath. Mama wants you to come up, she puffed. Papa's burnt himself. He woke his son, and the pair went back with Jenny to the Gunness household. When they arrived, they found a hysterical bell sitting in the kitchen, whilst Peter lay on the parlor floor in his nightshirt, his face covered in blood. Mr. Swan sent his son to collect help immediately and he rode off to collect the county coroner, Dr. Bowell. By the time Swan returned with the doctor, Peter Gunness had been dead for some time. Dr. Bowell inspected Peter's body, lying sprawled out on the floor. His nose was broken, and he had a large wound on the back of his head. His first impression was that Peter had been murdered. Confused at the situation, he returned to the kitchen to question Belle and find out what had gone on in the house. Bell explained to the doctor that Peter had gone to the kitchen to collect his shoes, which he had kept by the stove to keep them warm. As he had bent over to pick them up, the meat grinder, which was kept on the top shelf, had fallen down onto the back of his head, and as he had fallen from the blow, he had overturned a bowl of hot brine, which had been resting on the counter, scalding his neck. The whole thing seemed very suspicious to Dr. Bow. The neighbour, Albert Swan, too, found it difficult to swallow. As he returned home with his father that night, he voiced his opinions, though Mr. Swan quickly shut him down, telling him to not say anything of the sort, as it might be trouble for Mrs. Gunness. The next day, Dr. Bow carried out a post-mortem examination. He noted that there was no evidence of scalds or burns, but that Peter's nose was lacerated and broken, showing evidence of severe blows. His head showed the most severe wound which featured a laceration through the scalp and external layer of skull about an inch long situated just above and to the left of the occipital protuberance. Dr. Bowell recorded the cause of death as shock and pressure caused by the fracture. Unhappy with the situation as it stood, he called for an inquest which was to be held at the Gunness house two days later on Thursday 18th of December. The papers, meanwhile, we're treating the death as suspect, reporting rather vaguely on the affair. Mystery and sudden death. Coroner Bow is making an investigation of the death of Peter Guness, who died early yesterday morning. Guness's widow said her husband arose at eleven o'clock Monday night to go outdoors. He went to the side of the kitchen stove to get his shoes. A minute later he was bleeding from a deep wound in the back of his head, which is alleged to have been made by the falling of a sausage grinder. He was able to get back to bed, but offered no explanation of the affair and at 3 o'clock yesterday morning, died. Another local paper wrote of Peter Gunness' death as just another crime in a growing list of violent crimes that had swept La throughout December, calling it a carnival of crime. Peter's death was marked as mysterious circumstances, and as much as Bella might testify that Peter's death had been an accident, it seemed that not many were buying the original story of a sausage grinder simply falling off of a shelf and whilst Bella herself was never implicated in the stories printed, all chalked it up to a mysterious crime. During the inquest, Belle was called as a witness where she laid out a description of the events that night. All at once I heard him calling. He was over by the door and calling Mama as fast as he could and said that the children waked up and I was trying to think and said they should keep quiet. I had to go to Papa and that Papa was burned. I tried to put on my clothes because it was cold. I went down the steps and when I came down he was walking around the room and saying oh mama, mama, my head. I don't know what is the matter with my head, he says. It's like something going on in my head. Papa, I said, what are you talking about? Let me see what it is. I suppose you rubbed off the skin. Oh my head, my head. Well, if you think it's best. I had better send for the doctor, I said, and I went upstairs and I got the girl up, and she went over to the Nicholson's. When I came from upstairs, he was holding his head and said, Oh, Mama, I guess I am going to die. I asked him what was paining him so terrible, and took him some water, and he said not to touch his head. When Nicholson came to the door, I was rubbing his head, and I opened the door, I think, and they come in, and he then thought that he was gone, but I did not think he was gone before you came. I think he was only unconscious. Dr. Bowell asked her if she had seen any blood flowing from Peter's nose, to which she replied she didn't. He closed his questioning, asking Bell if the two lived happily together. Bell shrugged and said simply, as far as I know. Bowell next called Jenny as a witness, though she gave much the same story as Bell had. In fact, it was so close to Bell's story that the doctor thought perhaps Bell had coached the answers to her. There were glaring contradictions in Jenny's testimony since she had told the inquest that she was asleep for large portions of the evening and yet she also claimed to know details which would have happened only if she had been awake and in the same room as Belle and Peter. Belle next went on the offensive asking Jenny if she had been left any life insurance. Jenny said she did not know. In a fairly bold move for an inquest the doctor then asked if she had received any life insurance from Belle's previous husband's death. So Jenny shrugged the question off once again, claiming that she had no idea. Jenny may have legitimately had no idea what the doctor was probing into with this line of question, but it was fairly clear to everyone else present that the doctor had suspicions of Bell, and not simply for the death of Peter Gunnis. Despite the question at the inquest and the apparent path the line of suspicion seemed to be taking, it eventually was closed, with Peter's death officially classed as accidental death. Killed by sausage grinder. Coroner Bauer today announced that his finding in the case of the mysterious death of Peter S. Gunness would be that he came to his death through an accident. He died of a fractured skull. The widow, who was Belle Soronson of Chicago until last fall, said a sausage grinder had fallen on him. And so, the official story gradually filtered out through the press. Though many locals never bought the story, and from Peter's death onwards, Many said they harboured doubts over the cause of the death and the rumours persisted for years after. One man who was particularly suspicious was Peter's brother Gust who turned up on the farm to inquire with Bell if Peter's life insurance policy had paid out to his daughter Swanhild as it was originally planned to. Bell told him that the policy had been changed recently when Peter invested it entirely into a mining company. There was nothing to be concerned about, she reassured him. The investment was a sensible one and one that would make Swanhild very rich indeed. When Gust asked to see the shares in the company, however, Bell was unable to present them. During his stay, Bell asked Gust if he might like to stay on the farm with her and her family. He could take care of Swanhild and help Bell with the farm work. The next morning, Gust was nowhere to be found, nor Swanhild. He had packed his things and left with Peter's daughter in the dead of night. By 1904, Belle had begun to struggle with life on the farm alone. Neighbours commented on how she would traipse around in the mud, wearing her husband's old shoes and coat. It was not a glamorous life, and Belle decided enough was enough. She put an advert in the Scandinavian, a local Norwegian language paper, seeking the help of a farm labourer. 30 years old Olaf Lindbow was the lucky man to be employed by Belle for the position. He had contacted her by post from Indiana and then moved onto the farm bringing all of his possessions and $600 in life savings. It wasn't long before Olaf seemed to get the wrong idea about the situation, however. Hired as a work hand for the farm, he soon started writing letters home to Norway, explaining to his parents that he had met a woman and would soon be marrying. He also took it upon himself to spout the same around the local area when he was out drinking. It became fairly common knowledge around the Laporte farmhouse community that Belle and Olaf were engaged to marry. That was until Olaf appeared to up and leave one day soon after. When neighbour Chris Christofferson asked after him, as he had not seen him around the farm for a while, Bell told him that he had gone off to St. Louis to see the World's Fair and buy some land. Strangely, she told neighbour Nicholson that he had returned to Norway, and when Olaf's parents wrote to Belle inquiring why they had not heard from their son for a time, she wrote back telling them that Olaf had simply gone west and took up a homestead someplace. Still, wherever Olaf got to, he needed replacing and so it was that Henry Gerholt came to move in and work on the farm in April of 1905. Henry wrote to his family in Norway, telling them how he had moved in with a kind woman on the most beautiful farm in La and was being treated as if he was one of the family. Things seemed to work out well with Gerholt, but once again he disappeared in August without a word. When Belle asked her friend again, Chris Kristofferson, to help out in his place, she told him that he had gone off to Chicago. Christofferson thought it better not to question why he had seemingly left all his belongings behind, including his coat, which Bell was now wearing as she traipsed about on the farm. After Henry Gerhold's disappearance, Bell once again took to the classifieds, placing an ad for company. This time, however, she sought more than just a farm helper. Wanted. A woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition wants a good and reliable man as partner in same. Some little cash is required and will be furnished first-class security. She signed off the ad, BG, posted it across the local and national level and sat back to see if there would be any potential suitors. The postman confirmed later that in fact, Bell was soon furnished with a whole host of potentials as he delivered up to 8 to 10 letters per day to the farm addressed to Bell, originating from all over the US. One of the suitors who responded to Bell's advert was named Andrew Helgelian, a 49-year-old Norwegian immigrant farmer from South Dakota. He had struggled with life in the States, and he often pined for his homeland. His past had been fairly rocky, as he had spent time in prison for robbing a post office in Minnesota, and then in a somewhat drastic measure to conceal evidence, decided to burn it down. Clearly the plan didn't work. Nowadays, however, he was a new man. He had been released 12 years prior and taken to farm work and living the right way. Bell seemed to be taking a liking to Andrew, writing to him in August to boast of the farm she owned, overinflating the value a touch, of course, and asking him to let her know how much he intended to invest himself into the partnership. In the next letter to him, she wrote of how the area was full of millionaires who had previously invested into their land, of how idyllic the climate was, and of how she had decided to pick him as her suitor out of over 100 men. Come quick, she wrote. Take all your money out of the bank and come as soon as possible. Whilst Bell continued to communicate with Andrew Helgelian, life on the farm became fairly hectic. Emil Greenin had moved in and began working on the farm as a labourer, and at the same time, Potential suitors were arriving almost weekly to visit Belle and attempt to prove their worth. Many of them were introduced to Andrew as cousins, though none of them stayed for any length of time. Strangely, Emil did take note that not all of the men left with their belongings, and Belle was gaining quite a collection of trunks that they would leave behind in their apparent haste to leave. There was, he said, an entire room in the house dedicated to storing the trunks and left behind clothing. That summer, Jenny, who was now 16 years old, was growing into a fine adult and it was time Belle decided to send her off to college. She told Emil and the neighbours that she had arranged for her to attend college in California and later that year, in December of 1906, Jenny left to start her college life. She left quite abruptly as it turned out, unable to bid any of her friends farewell. In June of 1907, almost a year after the initial communications with Andrew Helgelian, Bell had still not quite managed to convince him to move out to the farm. Though they continued to write and Bell continued to woo him with promises of traditional Norwegian feasts and Laportean riches, he continued to postpone his move. Bell pressed on. We shall be so happy when you get here. Then I will make a cream pudding and many other good things. How lonesome it must be for you up there all alone. You must hurry and come to me as soon as you can. You have been there long enough and worked hard for many a day, and now you must take it easier for the rest of your days. June also saw Emil Greening quit his position as labourer and move out at the farmhouse. Bell employed Ray Lamphere in his place, a local whose family had at one time had great sway in the local area. His father had been the schoolteacher, politician and justice of peace, but had turned to drink and eventually squandered away his position, reputation and money. Ray suffered a fair amount for his father's misadventures, and though he was a skilled carpenter, he too had later fallen to drink and was fairly keen on going out at night, getting hammered, gambling away any money he had, and on a good night, spending his winnings on prostitutes. It wasn't long after he moved in that he began repeating a similar, albeit more lurid tale as the earlier Olaf. He spread rumour about town that he and Belle had become lovers, and of how she would come to his room at night. This strange situation between labourer and farm owner lasted until January when at long last Andrew Helgelian decided he would make his big move to the port. Bell wrote to him explaining that he should keep the move a secret. In fact, she had insisted on this for some time, of how their correspondence and subsequent future relationship was to be kept secret for just the two of them alone. When we get all settled, we will have your dear sister Anna in Lebanon visit us, but my dear Do not say anything about coming here, then the surprise will be so much greater when she finds it out. It is so much pleasure to keep this secret to ourselves and to see how surprised everyone will be when they find out. She also insisted that he sell everything he can for cash and to sew it all into his underwear, repeating once again that it would be really best if he did not tell anyone where he was going. Andrew took this advice a little too much to heart, but didn't really think of a particularly clever cover story telling his brother Assel that he was going away and that he would be back in one week. When Andrew showed up in the farm on January the 3rd, 1908, Bell quickly relegated Ray Lamphere to the barn in the yard, giving Andrew Helgeland his room and demanding that Ray not speak to Andrew. On the sixth, three days after his arrival, Bell and Andrew went to the bank to cash his certificates of deposit from the South Dakota bank. It took five days for the money to reach the bank, but it wasn't until the 14th that the pair returned to collect them as Andrew had fallen ill. The deposits totaled $2,839, around $75,000 today, of which Bell insisted they take in cash. Now their happy home life and fortuitous future could finally start, or at least, that was the plan. But that night, Bell sent Ray Lamphere to Chicago to meet Bell's cousin John, a horse trader. If he didn't show up for whatever reason... Ray was to stay overnight in Chicago and meet him the next morning. Ray did as he was told and travelled to Chicago, but after John didn't show, he decided that it was still early enough for him to return home and he really didn't fancy staying out all night in Chicago. He arrived home at 9 pm to find that Andrew Helgelian had, like so many before him, mysteriously left without explanation. Back in South Dakota, Assel Helgelion, Andrew's brother, was starting to worry. Andrew had told him he'd be back in a week, and now after ten days he hadn't returned nor sent any word. Suspicious that something might be wrong, he began looking around his brother's cabin to see if he could find anything that might explain his absence. He soon came across a bundle of letters written to him over the past 18 months from Bell, and he wasn't overly keen on what he read in them. Things back in Laporte were beginning to get a touch stressful for Belle. Ray Lanfield was becoming more and more of a pain, and in February, she let him go, running him out of the farmhouse one night. And when he came back to collect his belongings, she pointed a pistol at him, threatening him until he left. She then wrote a letter to the local law enforcement, Sheriff Smutzer, complaining that Ray was harassing her. She hired Joseph Maxson as Ray's replacement, but even with the increased presence of another adult on the farm, Ray continued to bug Bell. In March, she had him arrested for trespassing. In court, he pleaded guilty and paid Bell $1 in fines. Bell then filed an affidavit against him, alleging that he was insane, though a medical examination would later clear him. In the affidavit, she wrote of how Ray turned up at the farmhouse almost every night, generally intoxicated, and carried out various minor misdemeanors and harassments. Though the insanity allegation had not come off, in the interim, she could at least continue having him arrested for trespassing, which she did twice more, until he was eventually lodged in the county jail. In mid March, Assel Helgelian confirmed Bell's address with the Laporte postmaster and wrote her a letter concerning his brother's whereabouts. In her reply, Bell wrote to him that she had wondered just the same. You wish to know where your brother keeps himself? Well, this is just what I would like to know, but it almost seems impossible for me to give a definite answer. She wrote of how Andrew had gone off looking for his estranged, long-lost brother who had become addicted to gambling. He was going to make a thorough search for him in Chicago and New York. He always thought he, the brother, had gone to Norway and he would go after him. He was to look for his brother the next day and he said I shouldn't write until I again heard from him. Since then I have neither heard or seen anything of him. Now this is all I can say about the matter. I have waited every day to hear something of him. If it sounded fanciful to most, it was even more so to Assel. He wrote back asking for Bell to send him his brother's letter so that he could read it in his own words. However, she told him that it had been stolen by a man named Lamphere. Lamphere, as it happened, was getting ready to stand trial for the long list of misdemeanors and harassments of Bell over the past months. On April 15th, he took to the dock. When Bell was called as witness, Lamphere's attorney, Work Warden, wasted no time in taking Bell to task under his cross-examination in an effort to undermine her credibility with the jury. Warden began asking her repeatedly about her past husband's deaths and of the question of who had prospered from the life insurance. He pressed Bell so hard, in fact, that the judge, red-faced, slammed his gavel down and demanded that the solicitor quit browbeating the defenceless woman at once. Lamphere was eventually found guilty and charged $5 in costs, in total, $19.01. One might think that if fines and jail time were not enough to deter Lamphere, then the sheer hassle of the legal process might have been. But apparently, it was not, as less than a week later, Bell had him arrested once more for trespassing on her farm, prowling about in the hog pen. That April, Bell received another letter from Massel. He wrote to tell her that he was coming to Laporte in order to see if he could track down his brother. Bell wrote back that she would be happy to assist him in any way that she could. With Lamphere arrested once more, Bell started to tell anyone that would listen that she feared for her life and that she was concerned that Lamphere was going to burn down her farmhouse. She disseminated the rumour throughout the town that he had been threatening her for some time now and she was nervous of what he might do. On Monday the 27th of April, She visited her solicitor and told him that she would like to ensure her last will and testament was in order as she was fearful of Ray who had been threatening her life and she wanted to make sure that everything was in good shape just in case anything happened. In her new will, she left all of her property to her children Myrtle, Lucy and Philip. If one or more were deceased, then their share would be split among those left alive. If, however, all three were dead, then their entire estate would be left to the Norwegian children's home of Chicago. She left the solicitors, took the wheel to the bank where she placed it in her safe deposit box and made a cash deposit of $730. After she left the bank, she went to the grocery store and bought some candy, cake and a toy train, telling the shop clerk that she wanted to give the children a treat. She also bought a large amount of groceries and two gallons of kerosene, after shopping, she went home, had dinner, and retired with the children and Maxon to the parlour. By 8.30pm, Maxon went to bed as he felt unusually tired. As night fell on the Gunness farm, quiet peace fell across the 48 acres. The still night was broken abruptly in the Clifford household as Ella Clifford woke to prepare breakfast before her husband went off to work. It was gone 4am when she looked out of the window in the dusky sunrise, when she noticed flames and billowing black smoke pouring from the Gunness farmhouse. Ella immediately alerted her husband to the situation, along with her son and brother-in-law. All three men rushed over to the farm in time to see Joseph Maxson hacking into the front door with an axe. Maxson had awoken just in time to escape his bedroom minutes before the ceiling had fallen in, and now he was trying to get his way back through the front door in order to rescue Belle and the children. The four men grabbed a ladder and propped it up against the side wall to see if they could check in the children's bedrooms. Although they managed to catch a glimpse into the room, they could see no bodies. Mr Hudson, another neighbour, arrived shortly after, half-dressed. His description of the house when he got there was a bleak picture for anyone left inside, with the entire building ablaze and the east wall ready to drop to the ground. With nothing left for them to try and do, the four men stepped back and watched the house burn ferociously until Max and off to alert Sheriff Smutzer. The pair returned at 5am, along with the volunteer fire company, but it was all too late. The farmhouse had gone up with an intense speed and as the ceilings crashed in on themselves, there was nothing anyone could do but watch as the flames slowly destroyed the entire house and began to burn themselves out. By daybreak, The main blaze had abated, though the rubble and ash that was left was still giving off a savage heat. The four men, along with a crowd of onlookers, worked to pour water over the ashes to try and cool them down enough for them to be inspected. One of the first curiosities to be noted were the signs by the cellar door of a concentrated blaze, which led the firemen present to believe that the fire had been man-made, and more than likely an arson. The rumours immediately began flying through the crowd. Some whispers spoke of how Bell had started the fire by herself, but many who were aware of Bell's earlier concerns with Ray Lamphere instantly jumped to the conclusion that Lamphere was the primary suspect. One of the many who speculated on this line of thought was Sheriff Smutzer, who had had to witness the ongoing feud between Bell and Lamphere firsthand for the past several months. He assigned his two deputies to bring him into the station. By the afternoon, the ruins of the house were an ugly scar on the large plot with just three blackened walls left standing, scratched into the sky. The fire service soon saw fit to bring the walls down so that the search of the wreckage could begin proper, and so, by evening, the house was entirely levelled. The same afternoon, an interesting piece showed up on the fire on the front page of the local papers. The home of Mrs. Bell Gunness, two miles north of the city, was burned to the ground last night. How the fire started is not known, but it is believed by many to have been of incendiary origin. Mrs Gunness and her three children cannot be found, and as it is known that they were inmates of the house, it is believed that they lost their lives in the fire. An attempt will be made during the day to clear away some of the remains. Mrs Gunness is a widow, her husband having died several years ago under rather peculiar circumstances. Mrs Gunness at the time was suspected of having murdered her husband to secure his life insurance. Mr. Gunness was struck on the head with the meat grinder and Mrs. Gunness stated that the grinder had fallen killing her husband but it was rumoured that Mrs. Gunness had done the deed herself. There was no legal action taken in the matter. Mrs. Gunness has been having considerable trouble with a man by the name of Ray Lamphere who was recently in her employ and was discharged. He persisted in returning to the place and annoying her. At one time he came after dark and stood outside the window swinging a club and a knife. She had peace bonds made out for him and charged him with insanity. A commission was appointed and Lamphere was adjudged perfectly sane. It is thought he may have gone back to the Gunness place with the idea of revenge and set fire to the house. The police are looking for him. The article was made up of no small amount of speculation, but curiously directly brought up Bell's dead husband Peter too. Aside from this wild speculation, The rush to print the story in the earliest afternoon edition led to the press missing out on two of the day's larger stories. First of all, the police found Ray Lamphere. In fact, he hadn't been hiding at all and was certainly not missing as they picked him up from his usual workplace. Secondly was the discovery of the bodies of the four people in the southeast corner of the ruins bundled together. There were three children's bodies and one of an adult, presumably Belle and her three children. The next day, the press got to include these developments in all their grisly glory and many pieces wrote of how Belle Gunness had heroically attempted to save the children and when all had failed, had laid herself over them in a futile attempt to protect them from the flames. Lamphere, however, fared much worse and was dubbed murderer, maniac and firebug in headlines sprawled across many front pages. The bodies were all blackened and dismembered and the press naturally took it upon itself to give the ugly details of each, including the remains of Belle, which presented the most ghastly appearance. Her body was an unrecognisable mass with the bones protruding through the naked flesh. The most grisly detail, however, was the absence of any head on the remains of Belle, the skull presumed to have been decapitated by the ruthless and torturing flames. Some papers, however, thought the lack of head presented a different scenario, that perhaps Bell had been murdered and the fire was simply cover in order to cover any evidence. Either way, there was one man who was clearly guilty for the crime and his name adorned every story written about the incident, Ray Lanphier. Meanwhile, Jenny, Bell's teenage daughter, who had been sent off to college in California, was reportedly on her way home to help deal with the estate. At the station, Sheriff Smutzer had not changed his mind after bringing Lamphere in the previous afternoon. When his two deputies caught up with him at work, his first words to them were asking if the three children and the woman had gotten out of the building. This, decided Smutzer, was enough to confirm his guilt, though when questioned how he had known about the fire, he explained that he had seen it whilst he was on his way to work. When the police asked him why he had not thought to alert the police, he shrugged and told them simply, didn't think it was any of my business. Smutzer had Lamphere removed to the county jail to await arraignment and whilst locked in his cell they began to question him intensely. Under the pressure Ray finally caved in and explained to the police why he had chosen not to inform anyone about the blaze. As it happened he had two reasons. Firstly he admitted that he was concerned that he would be blamed for starting the blaze but rather more importantly in terms of something of an alibi He explained to the police officers that he had spent that night with a woman named Elizabeth Smith. Elizabeth had been the daughter of Virginia slaves and had moved to Indiana after the Civil War. In her younger days, she had been quite a looker, but now, well into her 70s, she was well known in the local area and was suspected by many as being a witch. Those less superstitious just found her rough demeanor and ropey visage unpleasant and cast her out of the community. A great many were just simply racist, as demonstrated by the fact that she was known to the locals as Nigger Liz. There were, it seems, a great many reasons that Ray Lanphier would have liked this information to be kept a secret and withhold it from the police. But now, it served as something of an alibi. Unfortunately for Ray, Elizabeth nor himself had much sway over anyone in the community, and as such, he was charged with murder and arson the very next day. He pleaded not guilty and was taken back to his cell to await trial without bail. That evening, the inquest took place and heard witness from the three neighbours who arrived at the property shortly after the blaze started and Joseph Maxson. Maxson testified that by the time he had gone to bed, the wood stove had been put out and that no kerosene lamps were ever left burning overnight. The remainder of the inquest was a pretty straightforward affair. Sheriff Smutzer had his man as far as he was concerned and most of the press and legal officials seemed to agree. The post-mortem report on Bell Gunness' body confirmed that the head had been removed before death and all agreed that it had somehow managed to burn clean off in the fire. As the week drove to a close, several people descended onto the farmhouse ruins. Nellie, Bell's sister, arrived with their two adult children to take care of the bodies and have them transferred to Chicago for burial. Mrs. Olander arrived on Friday. A stranger to Belle, she was Jenny's blood sister, and though they had never met after Jenny's adoption, she had on occasion kept in contact with her long-lost sister. She had not heard from Jenny since she had left for college in California, and upon reading of the Gunnis House fire in the newspaper, she wondered why Belle had decided not to leave any of her estate to Jenny in her will. Jenny, of course, was reportedly still on her way, though reports were that she had gotten married and her honeymoon was holding up her arrival. Finally, Assel Helgelian was also due to arrive that weekend. He too had seen the story of the fire in the newspapers and decided that he needed to get out to the port if he had any hope of finding his brother, Andrew. The Gunness bomb was about to be at the tip of a probing group that was set to uncover a rather different story surrounding Belle in a very public way. On Sunday, May the 3rd, most of the people on the farm had become disinterested and left. There had been no new discoveries of Bell's skull and no interesting debris found. The only people left sifting through the ashy rubble were Joseph Maxton and neighbour Daniel Huston. Assel Helgelian had arrived in Laporte that morning and visited Sheriff Smutzer who drove him out to the Gunnis farm. Looking over the ruin, he joined the two men in sifting through the remains in the vain hopes that he might find some clue as to his brother's whereabouts. They poured once again through the cellar, but found nothing. Asso eventually made to leave the farm, disheartened and unsure of where to turn next. Though as he reached the boundary of the yard, a thought struck him and he turned back to speak with Maxton once more. He asked Maxton if he was aware of any plots that had been dug on the ground recently. It wasn't a particularly happily train of thought for Assel, but one that he needed to ask. Maxton thought for a minute before confirming that, yes, there had been. He had dug several pits in the hog pen recently for trash to be dumped and covered over. The three men walked over to the hog pen and begun digging. The air filled with the foul stench of rot and decay, and Maxton explained that Bella told him she had buried fish and tomato cans out there. Once their spades hit three feet down, however, they uncovered far more than fish and cans. The tip of Assel's spade hit something soft and the rot in the air grew unbearable. Looking down into the pit, he saw a torn gunny sack filled with the petrifying remains of a human. The three men carefully excavated it and laid it out in the barn. The body was dismembered and in poor shape, but it was just recognisable to Assel as his lost brother, Andrew. Maxon left the men on the farm and rode to fetch the sheriff along with the coroner, Charles Mack. When they arrived, upon seeing the body, Smutzer asked Maxon if he knew of any other pits like the ones that they had just dug through. With a grimace, he confirmed that yes, he thought it very possible that he did. As the group began digging around the plot, a veritable medley of torsos, limbs, bones, gunny sacks and rotting items of clothing was soon uncovered. By the end of the afternoon, the men had uncovered what the coroner presumed to be the body of two men, one woman and one adolescent female. All four bodies were butchered and cut up into at least six pieces. Though the coroner quickly confirmed that an exact cause of death could not initially be confirmed owing to the condition of the remains, they all appeared to have been brutally butchered before being buried. The three adults were impossible to idea at first, but the adolescent woman had tufts of matted blonde hair that gave her away to anyone that had known the Gunness family. It was the body of Jenny, Belle's eldest daughter, whom most believed to have been studying at college in California. Upon the discovery of the bodies on the ruined farm, the story of Belle Gunness exploded. In international newspapers, headlines wrote of the Gunness murder garden and all talk of Belle as a heroine dying whilst attempting to save her children was quickly swept aside. She was now the arch-priestess of murder and mentioned in the same sentence alongside Jack the Ripper. Ray Lamphere was wheeled out of his cell for a press conference in which he was asked if he knew anything about Bell Gunnest the murderer. There were things I noticed, he told them. I guess they were more serious than I thought. By the sixth, the remains of nine bodies had been uncovered along with more than a dozen pairs of men's shoes and various miscellaneous other bones. The yard was mapped out and probed, concentrating first on softer areas that appeared to have been recently turned over. The press whipped themselves into a frenzy of wild speculation, writing fantastical stories of Belle Gunnis, the member of an organised crime gang and murder syndicate, shipping bodies across the US in trunks for disposal. Naturally, it was all entirely baseless, but many of the stories alluded to one fact that did stick in the minds of many. It was very possible that Bell was still alive. If the head was missing, how did anyone know that the body in the house was that of Bell's at all? The rumor spread like wildfire, and the mayor of La Lemuel Darrow, was quick to react, telling the press. There is only one solution to this mystery. Mrs Gunness enticed all the people here for the purpose of getting their money and then murdered them. She carried on a correspondence with countrymen of hers when she knew that they were single men or widowers with money and after making offers of marriage or other inducements such as having a suitable farm for sale, she would request a visit. After she got her men to the farm, she would entertain them so hospitably that their visits were prolonged. When the time was opportune, she would administer some kind of poison, probably arsenic or chloroform, and when death resulted, take her time in dismembering them and burying the remains in the yard. It was every bit as lurid and exciting as the press had hoped and perhaps even more than their wild stories of murder syndicates. Rumors and speculation prevailed that Bell may still be alive, much to the chagrin of Sheriff Smutzer, who was still trying to build a case against Ray Lamphere. If Bell was thought to have been alive, it would have crumbled like the blackened walls of the ruined farm. Rumors swelled of sightings throughout the USA, though there were so many in Chicago that a paper with tongue rather in cheek pointed out that it might not be safe for any large Norwegian women to be about in the streets for some time for fear of wrongful arrest. Psychologists chimed in, talking of her as a mother figure with a mad butcher as a split personality and of how she was an emotionally dead woman, whilst estimates were made on the amount of money she had made from the victims, with the conservative known total being around $46,900. That's $1.2 million today. The post-mortem examination on Andrew Helgelian's remains revealed that the mayor had been remarkably close in his estimations when he told the press his story of Belle Gunness. Grains of strychnine, a poison often used in pest control for its strong effects, were found in the stomach remains. From the body's injuries, it appeared that Belle's usual MO was to poison her victim's food, club their heads and drag them down to the cellar, where she would then proceed to decapitate and dismember them before tossing them into gunny sacks. Bury them in the yard and cover them in quicklime. The whole thing was almost too exciting to bear for residents all across the states, who now flocked into La Porte to get a look at the murder farm for themselves. On the following weekend, all of La Porte's hotels were fully booked, many setting up makeshift beds in the hallways for reduced rates. Special trains were put on by the rail company to ship people out to the farm, and many papers estimated a crowd for the Sunday to be around 10,000 people. They were wrong, as the actual total was thought to be between 16 and 20,000. Papers spoke of the day as having all the atmosphere of a country fair or political rally, with vendors selling food and drink, picnickers were laying out blankets alongside decaying pits of filth, and there was a vendor selling pink ice cream and cake, whilst photo cars of the bodies were sold for souvenirs. The newspaper report on the next day naturally sought to moralise the congregation, whilst at the same time printing wild speculation on the identity of the adult female body in the cellar. It was now being widely reported that she had stolen the body from a local cemetery in order to fake her death, and whilst it had no basis in fact, it mattered little to an unscrupulous press that routinely faked stories. The same article printed an illustration with Belle Gunness' head pasted onto a spider's body, sitting on a web that held photos of all her confirmed victims. Somewhat amazingly, the police set to work the following Monday, the 11th of May, in order to continue their search of the property. Even more amazingly, the entire place had not been stripped clean by looters and scavengers the day before, and they found eight men's watches and the remnants of a book on anatomy in the cellar wreckage, but still no skull. The skull of Bella had become rather a sticking point for Sheriff Smutzer, as his entire case on Ray Lamphere was pivoting on him murdering Bell. To this end, he employed the services of Louis Schultz, a veteran gold prospector, to sift through the wreckage to see if he could find anything of the skull, or as had recently come to light when Smutzer had spoken to Bell's dentist, any sign of Bell's false teeth. Smutzer, under advisory of the dentist, was led to believe that if Bell's head had been perished in the flames, it was more than probable that her denture, which had been made of porcelain, would have likely survived. If they could find the denture, they could, he decided, proved that the body in the cellar was that of Bell. On the opposing side, Ray's attorney, Wirt Warden, was not shy about his own theories and he issued a statement to the press to counter the stories against Lamphere that were being printed daily. There are two reasonable theories as to the cause and origin of the fire. One is that Mrs Gunness, thinking that Lamphere may have discovered things that would incriminate her and knowing further that Assel Helgelian was coming to make an investigation sought to cover up all evidence of her crimes and escape with her own life, if possible, and that she, in carrying this out, murdered the three children, placed them on the cellar floor with the adult corpse that she had found, and fired the building and escaped. The other theory is that Mrs Gunness, foreseeing the culminating of events upon the arrival of Helgelion, decided to end her own life and at the same time cover up all evidence of prior crimes, and to do so, killed her own children, Fired the house and committed suicide. In either event, Lamphere, as I firmly believe, is innocent of any crime. He is simply a victim of circumstance. On Tuesday, the 19th of May, Louis Schultz came up with the goods. He found Bell's denture on the property while sifting through the ash, and if that wasn't all, they were still hooked onto two surviving natural teeth. It was, as far as Smutzer was concerned, enough to land Lamphere in jail for good. As Schultz packed up his equipment and the excavations drew to a close, the total body count was sitting at 14 victims. Though it was as the press were quick to point out, 14 bodies that were found. If 14, why not 20? And if 20, why not 40? speculated one newspaper. The trial of Ray Lanthier began on Monday, November the 9th, 1908. On the eve of the opening day, Ray had spoken to the press, declaring his innocence firmly. They can twist and turn the evidence all they like, but if they prove that I set fire to the house, they will have to do it by false testimony. I have lived a pretty loose life, maybe, and possibly I drank too much at times, but there are others who have done as bad as me who are walking the streets of La today. I know nothing about the house of crime, as they call it. Sure, I worked for Miss Gunnis for a time, but I didn't see her kill anybody, and I didn't know that she had killed anybody. In the opening statements, the prosecution stated that they had solid evidence that the body in the ruins was that of Belle Gunness. Namely, this was her denture and a set of rings found on one of the charred hands, and that they could prove without doubt that Ray Lamphere was the man who had set the house alight. The first witness to be called was the coroner, and work warden wasted no time in going to town on the prosecutor's witness in his cross-examination. By the time the coroner had left the stand, Warden had had him admit that he had not been present when the bodies were found, that he couldn't state if the arms were attached or not, that he didn't weigh the body of the adult woman, that he didn't know at first that there was even a question as to the identity of the body, that he couldn't say that if there had been vertebrae missing, and that he didn't examine the spine with any care at all. He said that he couldn't tell if the legs had been cut off or burnt off, and that he didn't know if the head had also been burnt off or cut off, and that he couldn't positively state that the jawbone reportedly found was even that of a human. In fact, he admitted with a distinct lack of patience in his voice that he was not even sure that it was a bone at all. The afternoon saw the three autopsists who conducted post-mortems on the bodies to take the stand where more damning evidence for the prosecution came to light. They stated that the height of the adult woman had been around 5 foot 4, a full 6 inches shorter than Belle herself, and that the remains weighed a mere 73 pounds even taking into account the shrinkage which would have happened as the flesh cooked in the flames, it was highly doubtful that it would have shed at minimum 150 pounds. The second day proved to be a little bit more promising for the prosecution, when they called Bell's dentist to the stand, who confirmed that the denture was that of his own making. He also confirmed that the two natural teeth still attached to the denture could not have been pulled out with their crowns still attached, and confirmed to the court that in his professional opinion, the teeth had been severed from the mouth of Miss Gunness through burning. The final witness, called, was Sheriff Smutzer, and he gave the court a dramatic retelling of the lengthy saga and ugly history of Belle Gunness and Ray Lamphere. It was a damning statement and seriously undermined Lamphere's character to the jury. Next came the turn of defence, and Warden, in his opening statement, told the court that he firmly believed that Bell had plotted the entire house fire, subbed in a body, and escaped still alive. His entire case rested on the fact that Ray Lamphere had nothing to do with the fire, he was simply a victim of circumstance. The defence first called neighbour John Anderson, who gave testimony that in the days leading up to the fire, he had seen a large woman on the farm that he had never seen before, nor since in the company of Bell. Next came Joseph Maxson, who told the court that he had been standing next to Louis Schultz at the time that he had professed to find a denture. However, he stated now that he saw Schultz pull them from his vest pocket rather than out of the pile of filled ash. It was a curious statement and one which could and probably should have been followed up by recalling Schultz. However, the prospector had left town after the first day of the trial and no one was able to track him down. Finally, came the turn of Warden's key witness. Walter Stanley Haynes was a leading toxicologist and had received the stomachs of the bodies found in the ruins in order to test them for poison. He had, he said, found an abundance of arsenic and strychnine in the stomachs, suggesting that Bell had killed all four victims. If this was true, he would have made a strong case against the body being Bell given that her head still needed to be removed by someone. The problem with Haynes' testimony, however, was a discovery of how he had come about his results. It turned out that by the time the stomachs had reached him, they were in such a poor state of putrefaction that he had, wait for it, mixed them all together into some unholy mush and then tested them for poison. Given that the remains were all mixed together, his testimony was essentially useless as no one could say for certain whether the poison had been inside one, two or all of the stomachs. It was a blow for Warden, but he still believed Lamphere had a strong case and so felt hopeful at the end of the day when the jury was sent out to make their deliberations. The wait was a long one and they were out for a full five hours before being sent home for the night at 10.45pm without coming to a verdict. The next morning they returned and it took them once again a full day before they returned to the court to deliver the verdict to the judge. Curiously, Ray Lanphier was found guilty of arson but not of murder. He was sentenced to an indeterminate sentence between 2 and 21 years and given a $5,000 fine. That evening, he was interviewed in his cell. It could have been worse. I don't have any particular complaint. The evidence was pretty strong against me, so I'm willing to take my medicine. Sure, I was hoping for an acquittal, but my conscience is clear and that helps some. Work Warden, Ray's attorney, was somewhat less apathetic about the ordeal and he slammed the verdict as ridiculous and vowed to fight an appeal for the case. The problem was, Ray had no money for an appeal and so, the case against him felt quiet and Ray got on with serving his time, with the hope that he would be out in just a couple of years. It wasn't to be though, and on the night of the 3rd of December 1909, Ray died in prison aged 38. Warden lived for another 34 years and for all of them he maintained Lanfield was innocent and Belle had escaped with her life after faking her death in the fire. Following Ray's death in prison there were several false reports of deathbed confessions made by him. Some stated that he had told people that he knew Belle to be alive whilst others told of how he had seen her murder Andrew Helgelian but none were ever proven to be true. In 2008 The body that was thought to be Belle was exhumed and tested for DNA evidence, though the results were inconclusive. No skull was ever found, and though several reports cropped up over the years of various people who were thought to be Belle, no evidence exists to prove that she was ever found. In the end, as always, we are left with a mystery. Belle Gunness was undoubtedly a murderer and butcher, but had she died in the fire or escaped with her life, had she staged the whole thing to escape the closing web around her as her crimes threatened to catch up with her, or had she committed suicide in the same desperation? Or had, as Sheriff Smutzer decided long ago, she simply been immolated in the fire lit by Ray Lanfit. Whilst much of the evidence seems to point to the body being not that of Belle, how can one explain the teeth still attached to the denture, or even the denture at all? One dentist confirmed it should have survived the fire, whilst another was adamant it should not have, and regardless, where did the teeth come from if not from Belle, or had it been planted by Smutzer and Schultz? It seems fairly unlikely that the head had simply burnt clean off, but then where did it end up? One grisly thought is that Belle had taken it with her as she alighted, perhaps stashing it in a gunny bag in her luggage until she was far enough away to dump it somewhere it would simply never be found. Upon hearing the story of Belle Gunness, the Butcher of Men, it is a theory that isn't out of place with the grim murders and brutal dismembering that she certainly proved that she was capable of. So there we have the story of Belle Gunness, ladies and gents, back to earth with a grim piece of serial killing. Definitely an absolute psychopath, but where did she go? And I guess we'll kind of go back over some of the questions after these short ads.
1: Forbidden history, grizzly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Havey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support, so In order to do that, we need to, you know, run a few ads. So by that end, we've become an official affiliate with Audible. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service where you pay a monthly fee and with that fee, you get a credit that you can spend on an audiobook of your choice. It's actually quite a good service and I'm a member of it myself, so I'm quite happy to have it as a kind of advert in Dark Histories, despite the fact I don't really like adverts because I just think it's a, a good service that's a decent value for money the basic deal with Audible is that you get a credit once a month that you can spend on an audiobook and if you cancel you keep all your books which is quite nice they don't take any of stuff away um, you, I, I routinely start and stop my subscription when I when I don't need to use it basically and all my books stay there they have an app on iOS and Android and I do believe Windows as well so you can always listen to it on any device and they all sync up as well which is pretty handy. If this sounds at all interesting to you and you're interested in trying it out then head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can get a one month trial where you get a free audiobook of your choice at the end of the trial if you don't like it or you think it's not ready for you you can cancel it and you can keep your free audiobook and by using our affiliate link we get a small kickback in the process which helps to support the show so it's win-win for everyone really so if you are interested that link again is audible.com forward slash dark histories or if you prefer go to darkhistories.com, check out support and you'll find a link there that leads directly to the trial page thanks very much ads are a pain in the butt right of course you can hit that 30 second skip button and that's all cool but a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories Patreon. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, the full back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode, and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show, helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. See, that was Bell Gunness. It's a really popular story, I think, and one that since I started Dark Histories, has been requested several times. So I hope it was enjoyable. And, and you know, you, if you were one of the people that requested it, I hope you enjoyed it. It was definitely a great story for me. I, I really enjoyed reading about it and looking up through the old papers on it and stuff. Because it's one that I knew the story of, like the, over, the overarching story, but I never really looked into. So it was quite interesting for me I, I, to kind of really get in there and, and, and sort of find out more of the details. But my God, she was an absolute psychopath terrifying woman there were a couple of pieces in there that just cracked me up firstly it was when her brother-in-law turned up to get Swanhild, the child after peter's death and she said to him you know like oh why don't you stay on the farm and he's sort of like noped out of there really quickly he just took the kid that night but it, it, it's interesting because it makes you think like wow he must have been pretty scared of her like he must have seen something in her Because it was often said by people that, 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 you know, that that there was something about her that she wasn't quite, you know, she was a scary, intimidating woman. There's a story that I didn't include of a a man that um, came to visit her, one of her suitors, and he stayed the night and woke up with her like standing over him. And uh, he just kind of bailed as soon as possible. Yeah, so she was clearly a pretty terrifying woman, but it did make me laugh when, You know, she sort of says to him, oh, why don't you stay here, you know? You clearly could see a mile off what was coming there. She was going to totally do him and Swanhild, wasn't she? Or at least him. Yeah, terrifying woman. Absolutely terrifying. Absolute psychopath. I also like the fact that she just traipsed around on her farm wearing the the coats and shoes of her victims and telling people, oh, he's gone back to Norway. Whilst wearing, like, his coat and his pair of shoes or whatever. You just think, Jesus, you're a scary woman, love. It was almost like she just didn't care what anyone thought. You know, like the audacity of sort of pulling that sort of stuff off, you know, like, well, I'm just going to wear this and no one's going to question me. And if they do, I'll just kill them, maybe. Maybe that was her thoughts. I also like the fact that, it, you know, the, the web sort of, you could sort of visually see the web closing in around her as the story went on with Assel, particularly sort of getting on the front foot. And this kind of, closing in of people that were asking sort of difficult questions of her you know it's an asshole and all those guys start sort of descending upon Laporte so she starts kind of threading this kind of story throughout the the community that Ray Lamphere is threatening to burn her house down and then the next step is her burning her house down you can just see all this kind of it reminds me of sort of fiction almost where all the stories kind of converge at one point and you know that 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 point is like going to be an intense whatever happens at that point in the fiction or in the story um is going to be a a kind of intense flashpoint something big is going to happen and and i guess in this case obviously it's not fiction but in this case it was her burning the house down and either escaping or committing suicide which i guess is the big question was it belle's body did she commit suicide was she killed by ray or was it a substituted body and did she escape i'm Gotta admit, and I think would possibly make me somewhat unpopular, but I think it could have been a body, but I also think it couldn't. I'm sort of split. I'm definitely on the fence, as always. I definitely don't think Ray did it. I think that that's definitely something that I'm I'm well out of. I'm, I'm fairly sure Ray was pretty innocent. I think he conducted himself relatively well. When you read his testimonies, he seemed to have quite a bit of humility, and and he seems to conduct himself relatively well. And I, I just don't think he came across particularly guilty. So I don't think he had anything to do with it. I think that he probably was definitely harassing her. But I I don't know how much because I don't know how, you know, she I don't know how was she that intimidated? I mean, she seems pretty hard. You know, I don't know how intimidated she would have been. It seems to me like a lot of it was her seeding the story for Ray burning the house down. Because a couple of times she did actually get him arrested and, and it turned out he wasn't there. So Half a dozen of one and six of the other. Like she was at times he was harassing her and she was getting him arrested for trespassing. And at other times she was just trying to kind of get him arrested when he wasn't there to see this story against him. Um but regardless, I don't think that he burnt the house down and I do think it was Belle. But I don't know whether she was it was a suicide or she escaped. And and the thing for me that well, so this is my thought process behind why I'm on the fence right is that and obviously I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts as to what you will think about it uh, either at the live stream or you can email me but my um my thought process is that she obviously knew that it was all kind of converging on her and she was fairly in a bit of a desperate situation and her crimes were absolutely catching up with her so she needed to get out of it so for her it was either committing suicide or escaping I can see her escaping because I don't think she was Would have wanted to commit suicide. I don't think she was that desperate, and I think she thought she could probably make up a plan and get away with it. That's my kind of thought process as to her escaping. You know, I think she could easily have killed someone and and subbed the body in. And obviously, the stuff for that is the the weight and the height of the body, which doesn't seem at all to be correct for Belle Gunners at all. I, I don't really understand, you know, what might happen to a body in a fire, and there are that, you know, it was talked about during the day that it would have shrunk due to the heat sort of essentially cooking the body and the doctor not, the coroner not paying attention to the the the, the vertebrae and stuff like this. But it was weighed and measured by other coroners, by other physicians, rather. And um, it, it was estimated that she was about 5'3", 5'4", and the remains weighed 73 pounds. Well, she was estimated to be between like 200 and 260 pounds. Like, it's quite a large fluctuation, um, but it's over 200 pounds anyway. And so she would have had to shed, like, you know, nearly three quarters of her body weight in a fire. And I think the best evidence against that, so I don't really know what happens to a body in a fire, but the best evidence against that is, and this is a bit gross, but they compared it to cooking meat at the time and said, basically, like, if you cook a roast, it doesn't shrink to a quarter of its size. So that sort of goes against it. But at the same time, you'd say... You, you don't cook a roast until it's black and charred. So I don't know about that one. You know, I, I don't know enough about burning bodies to, 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 know, to know that. So then it leads you on to, was it suicide and was it actually her body? Um, the denture for me is, is a good one because it had two natural teeth still attached. Basically like where the denture would have hooked on, it was still hooked to two natural teeth. And those two teeth had crowns on so um, the dentist was saying, basically, you couldn't pull those teeth because if you did, you'd pull the crowns off rather than the roots. You wouldn't pull them out by the root. The crowns would just come off, basically. And I can sort of understand that logic. But then you get the testimony of and who said that he saw Schultz pull it out of his vest pocket and say, I found it. And then Schultz had gone. He didn't hang around for the trial. He gave his testimony and then fecked off basically so it but that but that then leads you down to the the sort of path of tinfoil hat and conspiracy theories and planting evidence and things like that and and that gets a little bit rocky you know it gets a bit ropey is that true or not um i don't know i do i do think the sheriff had a certain um need to do that because obviously his whole case against Ray sort of pivoted on this so you know he it was certainly in his favor to do it but are we always to believe that police officers are that corrupt that they'll do this stuff I mean as someone who kind of has been doing dark issues for two years now and and I'm sure you at home listening all kind of listen to these sorts of podcasts know that you know the police can and do do corrupt things in 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 history but But do they do it every time? I don't know. Was this guy, Smutzer, really that corrupt? I don't know. He doesn't, just comes across like a policeman. Would they really have planted this evidence? I don't know. Perhaps they would have. So that's kind of what leads me to be on the fence, you know. So basically I feel like I can see her doing both. You know, I can see her escaping. I can see her committing suicide. It just depends how desperate you are, I guess. I do think that she would prefer to escape. I don't think she was the sort. She didn't come across like someone who would give up and and commit suicide. She's she's come across to me as someone who would try and escape rather than commit suicide because she was far too self-interested. I think she wanted to survive, and I think she'd worked hard to make all that money from all those men. Why, Why would she throw it away? I think she wanted to go live a good life. So, yeah, it was an interesting story. There are several reports of people who saw her, over the years, and apparently, women who were Belle Gunness, um, none of them have any real evidence, and some of them are entirely discredited. Even though they're still kind of mentioned, all their stories have checked out basically. So, it, it, she's never been found. Um, there are say so there are several stories of people who say that say what she was found in um, California and Los Angeles, um, and but all over the place really. Um, but none of them have any truth to them it's all kind of speculation so yeah it was an interesting story and it, it certainly leaves you with loads of questions and obviously there's a lot more than that obviously we'll definitely be talking about this in the live stream next weekend so if you want to come along to that that'll be on youtube check out uh, darkhistories.com and you'll get links to all the social media which i'll post it on and also you might want to pop into our discord which is a kind of really cool community we have got going everyone kind of talks about various not necessarily dark histories related things but a lot of kind of weirdness and sort of uh, mysteries and true crime and, and a lot of Sasquatch uh, talk um, and things like that. So if you want to sort of jump in. Yeah, and, and obviously that's, that's helpful for to, because obviously all of the events and things like that, that like, like the live streams and such, are always posted on there. So yeah, if you want to know about that, say follow all our social media or jump on the Discord or both. But either way, you can find the details for that on darkhistories.com. You can also contact me there at uh, contact at darkhistories.com for the email or just go to darkhistories.com and you'll you'll find links to everything like contact and all social media and the community. And also you'll be able to find links to support and the various ways that you can support the show if you can support at all because, you know, it'd be really helpful if you can. But if not, no worries. It's coming up to the second anniversary of Dark Histories. So just quick, want to say over the next coming weeks, we're going to be doing like a vote for various categories for people over the last year to vote on. So it will be kind of like uh, who is the biggest bastard out of the Dark Histories and, and people can vote on who they, their biggest bastard for the last year was and things like that. And there's going to be like various categories to vote on. That's going to be happening over the next kind of month or so. And then at the end of that, I'm going to be putting together a second anniversary episode. Um, and if you would like to come on and present the episode with me, get in touch and let me know. Because basically I would like to make it like a community-made episode where we all kind of make it together. And each kind of category, I'm thinking to get like a guest presenter to come and help me present that kind of category. And and, and those guests are you guys if you're interested. So yeah, if, if you'd like to come on and help me kind of make that show, just get in touch, contact at Dark Histories. All you need is, uh, you know, a tatty microphone, a pair of like headphones that attaches to your phone, whatever. We'll do a Skype call and and I'll record it and and pretty it up and make it sound good. And, you know, hopefully, um, yeah, it'd be good fun. So, yeah, if you want to do that, do that. That's the end of that. I'm going to stop sort of chirping on. If you want to review, that'd be amazing. Loads of people reviewed last month be nice to carry that on so yeah if you'd like to review drop a review somewhere that'd be cool if you can't do that and you'd like to support that would be cool darkhistories.com you'll find everything there If you can't do that don't worry about it just keep listening the live stream will be next weekend if you can make it to that come along they're good fun they're total carnage we rarely stay on topic although i can see this one staying a bit more on topic but yeah, they're kind of loose. No, no real hard structure to them. It's just a nice chat with everyone. You, and everyone is free to come on the stream as well. You just click a link and it chucks you straight in. Um, and you can actually come on the stream. So you can either type in the YouTube chat or come on the stream and, and talk. It's always good fun. So yeah, that'll be next week. So all that stuff will be on social media. If I don't see you then, I'll see you in two weeks. So in those two weeks, I hope you have a great time. Take care. Stay well. Enjoy the summer. Uh, If it's not the summer where you are, enjoy the winter. Wrap up warm, I guess. And take care. I will see you all soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Sleep tight.